Hello, and welcome to the Salem on the Go podcast, a community of Christ followers that seeks the well-being of all people, a place where you can connect, commit, and continue to grow in your faith. The most important questions that a lawyer will ever ask in their case is the first ones. So, what are the first questions asked in Scripture? In this new series, First Questions, we'll explore that answer as we look at each of the first questions that are asked by individuals and characters all throughout the Bible. So let's turn now to the first question asked by the serpent. Well, good morning once again for those who are joining us, uh, maybe for the first time. uh, uh, My name is Pastor Sam, uh, if I didn't say that earlier, but glad you're joining us with us, uh, and particularly glad you've decided to jump in on the very first part of this series called First Questions. Now, First Questions is a series that uh, I've put together, and intentionally what we're going to do in Scripture and how we're going to study Scripture is we're going to explore together the first questions that are posed in Scripture. And the idea for this came to me when I was reading the story of a lawyer who said that one of the first things lawyers learn in law school is the importance of first questions. Now, we know that one of the most important jobs of a lawyer is, is the ability to ask good questions. You, know, you have to know how to format questions uh, on the job. You have to be able to sort of say just the right words in order to pull out the right information when you need to pull out that. You have to say it in just the right way with the right intonation, right, and the right tone as you do it. So their job in, in full is to ask the questions of witnesses, and it's the questions that they ask that help them sort of build or create the case that they're living into. But the first question that they ask, that question sets the tone for everything else. It it sort of points in others in the direction that they're going to go, right? They could turn any different way through this process. And as they ask that first question, it points other people in the direction that they want to go with that particular case. It clarifies any assumptions that they might have as they're going through this process. It clarifies that. And it also highlights any gaps that are already in their thinking, right? There may be some unanswered questions that are lying in this thing. And as they think about those particular questions, they can, they can get clarity about about it by asking the right questions. They can pull in the gaps and and close the gaps there. And if you think of a trial for just a few minutes, think of a trial as a journey that people go through. The very first question that they ask sets the course and the direction for that journey. Now, it goes without saying that the jury who sits in front of the lawyer in that courtroom, they have a lot of gaps in their knowledge. Supposedly, they don't know anything about the case. They're coming in fresh and with fresh ears and fresh eyes and all those types of things. But what's interesting about this is an attorney with the power of questions is able to fill in any gap that might be existing in the jury's minds, right? And this isn't always true, but sometimes our our questions, if we don't ask them carefully, they can get a little misconstrued, right? You might remember this uh, this famous clip, and I'm going to play you of this because we're at home, we're all watching our screens, why not? We need to laugh a little bit. But Our questions can get misconstrued, just like in Abbott and Costello's famous sketch, Who's on First? Now, all my boomers out there, you already know this skit. Uh, Maybe if you're a millennial or a Gen Z, you don't know this skit as well, but I'm going to play you a clip because I think it's just a classic way of of offering this. You know, they, they made this, I think, the first radio broadcast of this in 1938, so it goes way back, but they kept doing this over and over again because the idea of a misconstrued or a misaligned question 
so landed with people. So take just a couple minutes and let's watch a clip of Abbott and Costello's famous Who's On First. Let's see, now we have on our team, we have Who's On First, What's On Second, I Don't Know Who's On Third. That's what I want to find then, out, the guy's name. And then, uh-huh. That's what I want to find out, the guy's name. I'm telling you, Who's On First, What's On Second, I Don't Know Who's On Third. Now, Abbott, you now, want to be the manager of the baseball team? Yes. You know the guy's names? Well, I should. Well, now you tell me the guy's names on the baseball I team. I say, Who's On First, What's On Second, I Don't Know Who's On Third. You ain't saying nothing to me yet. Go ahead and tell me. <laughs> I'm telling him. You ain't said nothing yet. Go ahead and tell me. Who's on first? What's on second? I don't know is on third. You know the guy's name's on the baseball team? Well, go ahead. Who's on first? Yes. I mean the guy's name. Who? The guy playing first. Who? The guy playing first base. Who? The guy on first base. Who is on first? What are you asking me for? I don't know. Wait a minute. I'm asking you who's on first. That's his name. Well, go ahead and tell me. Who? The guy on first. That's it. That's his name. Well, you ain't said nothing. I ain't asked you nothing. You did. You know the guy's name on first base? Well, tell me the guy's name on first base. Who? The guy playing first base. Who is on first, Lou? What are you asking me for? Now, don't get excited. I'm saying who. I'm asking you a simple question. Who's on first? Yes. Well, go ahead and tell me. That's it. That's who? <laughs> I'm asking you, what's the guy's name on first oh, base? Oh, no. What's on second? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who's on first? One base at a time. <laughs> don't mix up my I'm story. not mixing up anybody. Now, what's the guy's name on first base? Now, what is on second? I'm not asking you who's on second. Who is on first? I don't know. He's on third. We're not talking. <laughs> Wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. How did I get on third base? You mentioned his name. I mentioned his name. Yes. I don't know anybody's name on the team. I, how could I mention a guy's name? You did. You just mentioned it. All right. What's the guy's name on third base? No, what's on second? Who's on second? Who's on first? I don't know. He's on first. <laughs> I didn't even mention a guy's name on third base. Yes, you did. All right, then. Who's playing third base? No, who's on first? I'm not asking you what's on first. What's on second? Who's on second? Who's on first? I don't know. He's third base. <laughs> You do, you mention their names. I do? Sure. You got an outfield? Well, naturally. The left fielder's name. Why? <laughs> I, I, I just thought I'd ask you. I just thought I'd ask you. Well, I just thought I'd tell you. Well, go ahead. Tell me. Tell you what? The left fielder's name. Why? Because I want to know. Because. Oh, he's center field. You know these players as well. Who's as in I... center field? No, who's on first? What's on first? What's on second? I don't know. Third base. <laughs> <laughs> now this this of course uh if you want to watch the full clip go find it on your own time i'm not putting it in the feed because you'll spend the next seven minutes just watching that but this this clip right here is of course the power and the curse of questions in our world if a question is not asked in the right way with the right tone with exactly the right emphasis there could be a lot of confusion just like you witnessed just a minute ago however if a question is posed in the right way, with the right intonation, at the right time, it can build bridges of connection and meaning in our information-driven world. And this is what's important, because in the world that we live in, you and I know this already, information is everywhere. You have more information at your fingertips than any other generation in history. There's no other generation out there where I would have said, hey, if you want to see the rest of the clip, just pick up your phone or open a new tab in your window. But you can do that. You can find that clip. You can find any other Abbott and Costello memorabilia or or, or, uh, skits out there. You can do that in a moment because we live in a world where we are information-driven and there's an information overload, right? In past, preachers like myself and teachers, we could just rattle off information and, and you would just blindly accept it as fact, but not anymore, right? In fact, I don't even need to give you as much information anymore because you can go out and just find the information. You don't need me or anyone else for information. You can find it. You can absorb whatever you want. 
And in the past, we had this whole institutions that were set up merely for the transfer of information, merely to pass on information from one age to the next. But that age is past. That's not where we're living. That's not what we're living in. Institutions now that are built on just the mere transfer of information are completely irrelevant because we don't need uh, information anymore. We need interpretation. We need help interpreting what's going on in the world and how to live with that. We, don't, we need to know how, what to faithfully do with all the information that is now in front of us. We need to know how to properly tell the story and put the pieces of our world together. What that ultimately means is we need help interpreting what's going on in the world. And interpretation is that thing that empowers us to live well. In light of all the information that is around us, it helps us in that particular way, put all those pieces together. Interpretation brings order, as I would say, into a world of chaos, into a world of disorder. All right, if, if order is the thing that was ultimately there in the very beginning of all creation, what happens is God gives us a way to bring back that order in a world where there is disorder. And, it, and, and, questions, and questions in particular help provide the structure that we need that is often missing in the world. And, and that's what I've discovered about questions. Good questions actually help us through this process of interpretation. And they help us in a couple of ways, and I'll try to bring these up for you. But the first way that questions help us, number one, questions help us begin with humility. Questions help us begin with humility. It's that moment where we admit in our lives the limits of our knowledge. We have knowledge. It's out there in front of us. There's all kinds of information. But humility, seen through questioning, is, is this place where we admit that there are certain limits, and we start to exercise the fruit of the Spirit in this zone. In fact, the humble path, according to Solomon, is the path of wisdom. That's why I love this, this proverb. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2 says it this way. It says, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with humility, well, wisdom comes with that. Wisdom follows humility. Wisdom comes with that. Solomon, the wisest person to ever live, his wisdom is not connected with the depths of his knowledge. His wisdom is grounded in his humility. That's where it's found. And humility is on full display when we lead other people with questions. So, questions help us, first of all, begin with humility. But, second of all, questions invite, and this is the second part, questions invite others into our journey. No one person will ever have the full truth at their disposal. Again, a wise guy like Solomon here, he's the one who says this in the very same chapter, if you read on down with me. In verse 14, he says it this way. He says, When there is no guidance, a nation falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. Right? So social deconstruction comes to any society that, fa- that falls to, fails to value the wisdom of community. If we fail to value the wisdom of the collective, socially, we start to fall apart. This is important to think about. I mean, think about the world that we're living in right now where everybody just wants to do it on their own, and we we see the disintegration of our society. This is exactly what Solomon is saying here in this verse. Where there is no guidance, a nation will fall apart, but in the abundance of counselors, there is safety. Now, some of the values inherent in our culture, and I, I admit this very, very clearly, keep us from both of those realities right there, right? In our society right now, it's better for us to go alone than to ask for help. 
We shouldn't look for the community to help. That's weak. That shows signs of weakness. We should just know it inherently. And so we would rather go it alone than seek the counsel of others. That keeps us from that. And since we value answers in our culture more than we value questions, we are expected to have all the answers at our disposal. And humility is not a part of that equation at all. It's not a part of that. It's not a part of our lives because we're just assumed to have answers rather than raising and asking good questions. And that's where the first question that's ever asked in Scripture gets really, really interesting for all of us because it's a question that challenges both our connection to others and our humility or the humility that we should have. And it's a question of trustworthiness. Right? Before we look at this question in Scripture, let me ask you the question that I asked you earlier. How do you know someone is worthy of trust? How do you know someone is worthy of trust? And don't say Walter Cronkite, right? That's not, I don't want you to give me the last name Cronkite, that's it. All right, they did deliver, deliver facts in a fair and unbiased ways. I know in the past that might have been through, you know, someone was trusted because of their position, right? It could have been a government official, could have been law enforcement, it could have been pastors, right? Because of the position that a person holds, we were able to trust them. But what is it for you today? In fact, I think a few of you put these up, so I'm just going to kind of read through this really quickly. I know a couple offered some suggestions. One person, Amy, says, someone is worthy of my trust when they show up rather than they disappear in tough times. That's good. Aaron says, what makes a person worthy of my trust is if they've invested time in me and my interests is one thing. Uh, and then Becky on another of our pages says, uh, when they show kindness and empathy, that's when I know they can be trusted. So there's a variety of ways. In fact, some of your answers might even go beyond that, or you might not fit into it. Uh, you might say it's because of their family, all right? It's because, because they are family. They're part of my family, and I just trust them because we have that connection in blood. It might expand a little bit further out from there. You might find yourself trusting someone who is from where you are because they see the world the way you went. You know, you, you could expand this out. I've heard people say, well, I, I trust them or I, I would do business with them because they went to the same college I went to. They were in the same fraternity or sorority as I am. Right? They, they, they share something with me that helps me trust them. So they have similar interests. They might have a general view of the world that's similar to you. Uh, sometimes that's what builds trust in the world. Maybe they share the same values as you. I think that's some of the idea that was brought up in the, in the comments that we saw online is that they share values. And and, and because they show up, because they're reliable in your life, what, what they end up doing is they demonstrate that they care for you. They care about you as a person. And somewhere under each of these realities is the assumption that I can trust you. This is really important to think about for just a moment. I can trust you because I can see myself in you. I just want that to, to rest with you for just a minute. I'm not saying this is the right way to approach it, but whenever we think of what it means to trust another person, part of what we're saying is, I can trust you because I can see myself in you. And this is a reality for all of us. And, and, and as I said, I'm not saying that's correct. I'm not saying that that is how it should be, but that is the world in which we are currently living. We're built to trust ourselves more than anyone else. We trust our intentions. We trust our goodwill. We trust our actions. We trust our words. We trust our thoughts. We are built and wired to trust ourselves. And if anyone looks like me, acts like me, speaks like me, comes from the same place as me, I can start to trust them as well. We're built to trust ourselves more than anyone else. And so I can trust you because I see myself in you. And while this may be the reality that we face, I don't think it's the reality that God wants for us. 
I don't think it's what God wants for us. It's a skewed view of reality. And to use C.S. Lewis's language that he often used, it's a bent reality or a slightly bent reality. It means that as we're thinking through this, it, it may look like a straight arrow, but it's just turned a little bit. And if you let that arrow go, it's just going to turn off course slightly as it goes. And the first question that we see in Scripture is the question that actually started us down this twisted path of our reality where we wouldn't trust anyone else. And it didn't come from God. That'll come next week. And it didn't come from Adam and Eve. It comes from the serpent. The, the wiliest and, and craftiest of all of God's creatures, it comes from the serpent. And the serpent utilizes, in this opening section of Genesis, the power of a question to disrupt every single human relationship. In fact, we see this taking place in the third chapter of Genesis, right at the very beginning in verse 1. It says there, and we'll bring this up on the screen for you, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? He asked. This is the, this is the core of the question. Did God tell you you couldn't eat from that? Are you trusting that, that, that what God said is true? Is, are you trusting that he's good? And with this single question, what the serpent does in that moment is he introduces the idea of suspicion into relationships. Did God really keep this from you? Why would God do that? The first question in all of Scripture is a question that challenges God's goodness. Is God really as good as he says? Is he worthy of your trust or is he trying to keep something that would be good for you away from you? Is he really for us? Is he really with us? And if he is for you, why would God want to keep that blessing away from you? Why would God do that to you? And it's just the tiniest, tiniest bit of suspicion that the serpent introduces, but it's that suspicion, that seed of suspicion, that slowly starts to deteriorate the foundation of the relationship that God had with human beings and that human beings had with each other. And what's interesting about this is neither logic nor experience can overturn the damage of this question. In fact, over the next few verses, you can see the woman, Eve, introducing logic back into it. The, the woman answers in a very logical way. She tells the serpent the rational response of why God would do this. She says in that moment, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, nor shall you touch it or you shall die. She just gives the serpent exactly what God had said. This is the logical, straightforward explanation of why this would happen. And of course, in the face of a logical response, the serpent offers a logical response in return. And here's what the he says. You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you in that moment will be like God. You will know good and evil. Right? And so logic is met with logic, and in that moment, her suspicion grows when the serpent matches that logic up. And remember, none of this is really solved by her lived experience, and her lived experience was entirely different. She knows that God is good, and you know why she knows that God is good? She knows that everything God has done was for the good of humanity. In fact, that's the reason that in our scripture reading today, I started all the way back in chapter 2, verse 18, so you could see the example of God's goodness in their life, all the way down to her very creation. If we skip back over to Genesis chapter 2, let me bring up just verse 18 real quickly for you. It says there, then the Lord God said, right? then the Lord God said in that moment, it is not good for humanity, for man to be alone. 
He's looking at Adam in isolation and loneliness, and the very first thing that he said is not good is that humanity should be alone. Therefore, what I'll do, the good thing I'll do, is I will make for him a partner, a helpmate, someone who will stand by his side in equality. He knew that isolation would be devastating to you and me in that moment. He knew that. And so Eve's creation, all the way back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, is a response of God's goodness. Eve's creation in this moment is God's mercy being poured out upon humanity, caring for us, loving us. He forms, at, he forms out of Adam, Eve, and the two become one. And apart from, uh, apart from one, uh, one another, they're not whole. They become that one flesh. In fact, that's how that passage sort of ends in chapter 2, verse 24. It says this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. And what does it say right there? They become what? One. One flesh is what they become. The fullest life that you and I can live is in the context of relationship, and God knew that. God cared for us enough to create that relationship, not just with himself, but with others around us, and to live in the context of that relationship. Yet, in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, one question of suspicion can overturn both Eve and Adam's experience, and it can overturn the logic of that reality. And most of us, most of us have experienced that reality at some point in our lives. There's this moment where suspicion rises in our relationships and we see everything differently. We see every action differently. We see every behavior differently. And we interpret the past in a different way. In fact, I see this in in couples who are experiencing the struggle of marriage that's maybe moving towards divorce slowly. I see this over and over again that one of the problems that has arisen in their relationship is a lack of trust. They're suspicious of every activity, suspicious of every move, of every engagement, of every encounter, of every relationship, of every text, of every comment, of every, of every word that comes out. There's a suspicion that overshadows that relationship. And the suspicion doesn't just settle in the moment, but the interesting part about it is that that, that suspicion goes back historically. And so the spouse, one or the other, would start to question every action and activity in the past as well. But at the end of the day... That one moment of suspicion is what taints every other relationship. It taints that one core relationship, and it taints every relationship that that person will ever have. And this is exactly what happened in Genesis chapter 2 and moving into Genesis chapter 3. is one moment of suspicion, one question of suspicion, deteriorated every relationship in humanity's path. Relationship with God and relationships with others. And it's because we have this terrible habit of spreading our suspicion around like Eve did in the garden. Eve didn't just keep it for herself. Despite her experience, despite her knowledge of the truth, this question of suspicion actually caused Eve in the next couple verses to take the fruit elsewhere. You look at verse 6 and you start to see this. It says in verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, what did she do? She took of its fruit, she ate it, She didn't stop there. She didn't just take it in herself. But in the very next part of the verse, at the end of verse 6, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it. He consumed it. She sucked him in that moment into her own suspicion and doubt. And the perfect relationship that they shared with God in that space began to fade. And we see that at the end of this part of the story, this independence and this this self-reliance led them to a moment of despair. 
Very different from the end of chapter 2. In the end of chapter 2, we see that they were naked and they were unashamed and they went around the garden. But by the end of verse 7, we see that they, at that moment, had their eyes opened and they knew that they were naked. And in response to that, they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. I don't need anybody. I don't want anybody. I got this. I could go at it alone. I'll be fine. And in the middle of this, we never realize that there's a better way. There's a better option. Now, next week, I'm going to talk a little bit more about what this better way is and the way that God steps in and provides this better way. But for this morning alone, I just want us to rest in the reality that challenges, that challenges will always lie in our path. In terms of faith, this will be the biggest challenge that we face. Suspicion. Is God good? Does God care for me? Does God do what God says he will do? Is God with me and for me? And this is the biggest question that we will ever come to in the context of our faith with God and our trust in other relationships. It's a question of trust. Can you really trust that God is good? Can you trust that God's plan is best for your life? You see, the curse of our life, the curse that was passed on to us generation after generation is this question of suspicion. That's where it comes And that question of suspicion fills every single relationship in all of our life. And before you and I can ever proceed forward in a life full of faith, I think we need to wrestle with our suspicion. I think we need to wrestle that to the ground, and we need to start growing in the middle of that. We need to wrestle with our trust, and we need to find ways in our lives to grow in our trust of other people. So how do you do that? How do you actually grow in your trust? Do you develop that? How do we build trust and develop healthy relationships with God and with others? And that's where I want to lead you, leave you today. I want to offer you two suggestions that we can kind of go out with today. First one that I want to offer you is simply this. In order to grow in your trust, you need to lower your assumptions and you need to raise your questions. Lower your assumptions, raise your questions. I said already this morning that the curse of our life is that we're born into an inherent suspicion. We're born into a world where there is a gap between us and others. And instead of filling that gap with trust, we often fill that gap with suspicion in our relationships. We question God's trustworthiness, the trustworthy of others around us. And we do this from the very beginning of time. And ours is where the assumptions begin. And so in order to dismantle that assumption, in order to dismantle that suspicion, rather, we have to practice humility necessary to ask the questions of others. So we need to, for just a few minutes, we need to lower our assumptions. Lower the assumptions that we have of others in our lives. Lower the assumptions of others who are around us. And just start asking questions for just a moment. Practice that humility that says, I don't have all the answers about you, but I'd like to know. I'd like to know more. I'd like to know why you say the things you say. I'd like to know why you think the way you think. I'd like to know how you are seeing the world. And in order to do that, I have to practice enough humility to push down my own assumptions and ask those questions. Right? And so in that spirit of asking good questions and and practicing that humility, that takes us to the second thing we need to do. We need to invite others in. Right? So lower, lower our assumptions, raise our questions. And number two, when possible, Invite others in when you want to push them out. Invite others into your life when you want to push them away. And this is sometimes difficult. And the reason I think this is really difficult for a lot of us is because there are moments where those actions of another person have really betrayed our trust deeply. And we live with that. We live with the weight of that betrayal. We live with it all our lives. And it takes time to heal from that damage. And that's why I say when possible. That's, that's why I wanted to address that on the front end. 
And, and let me say in terms of when it's actually possible that timing is going to be important in your life for this to actually take place. You're going to need to, to have the right timing. And part of having the right timing is perhaps pushing yourself to set a date. To set a date where you can look at it and say, you know what, I'm going to proceed forward with this relationship at this time and at this way, and I'm going to have that date. And for your own safety, for your own mental well-being and all those things, discover when that time is right, but don't hesitate to actually make time to do what's right. Don't give up. Don't give up on the relationship being able to heal and to, to be restored. And one of the ways we can do that is by setting the date. The second thing that I would like to offer there is this piece of safely engaging in human relationships often involves that we lower our expectations of others. And sometimes we're not able to engage in other relationships because our expectation of how another person should respond to us is, is much higher than they're able to provide or maybe it's much lower than what they're able to provide. But we need to change our expectations. We need to be willing to let go of our expectations in this myth. So for you to have any relationship at all, it might mean that you change your expectations of that other person. Change what you expect from that other person and pursue the relationship with the person who's right in front of you. That's the most important part, to recognize that there is a person standing in front of you, loved, created, molded by God, and God is asking you in this moment to engage that person. Not the ideal version of that person that you've got made up in your mind, not the, the version that you wish they would be, but the person who's right there. Choose to engage them right where they are, not where you want them to be. And when we do all of this, we do these things, or our assumptions, raise our questions, pull into relationships when we'd rather pull out, it's in that moment that I believe we can see our trust being rebuilt. The way I would say it is simply this. We can rebuild trust when we commit to questions over statements and commit to community over isolation. And that's where I want to leave you today. These are the two things that we can do. If we'll commit to questions over statements and community over isolation, we'll start to be able to build that relationship. Next week, I'm going to talk to you about how this works out in our relationship with God in particular and how the questions just continued to evolve in those opening chapters there and, and what God's question was. But for this week, what I simply want to do is I want to invite us to focus on the place where we need to build trust and relationships around us. I want us to help each other in this task. If we need questions over statements, if we need community over isolation, I want us to help each other in this task. And Justin's going to play one more song as we finish out today. And, and he's going to offer this as a song that you can sing along to if you want to. But as he sings this song, as he plays this song, I want you to wrestle with two questions that I'm going to put on the screen. And the two questions are simply this. What questions have you found helpful in building trust with others? And where do you find community? And these aren't questions for you just to hold. Over the context of this, uh, of Justin playing this last song for us, I want you to ask, actually answer those questions. I want you to put those questions in the chat feed below, and I want you to start engaging with each other. Help one another. Where is it that you personally have found questions helpful in beer, or what questions rather have you found helpful in building trust with other people? What are they? What could you put out there and say, hey, I found this one helpful. Use this. And then in, where have you found community where it's been missing in your life? Where, do you, where have you found it? Maybe you can invite other people in. In those ways, that's what I want you to explore for the next few minutes. Those two questions. Engage with each other in that way and let God start to do amazing things in your life. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for this moment where we can engage in these questions with each other. We can, for just a few minutes, wrestle 
what it means to build trust. And sometimes it means that we practice humility. Sometimes it means that we step out of our isolation and we start engaging with others in more meaningful ways. And God, I just ask that over the next few minutes that you would help us through the context of our, uh, our closing time of worship together to encourage one another, to spur one another on with questions that have been helpful to us, places where we found community. God, in all these things, we'll give you thanks. In Christ's name we pray.